At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Hey, everybody, we've got a fun one for you today. You've joined the TFL Classics podcast. And what are we discussing today, Brendan? So today we are tired of getting slack for... Everybody uh, hating on us for constantly recommending unreliable classic cars. So we made a list up of 10 of the most reliable classic cars. The most reliable. So they will only leave you stranded some of the time versus all of the time. Exactly, yeah. So th these are, are known for their longevity, known for being able to put lots and lots of miles on them with very minimal maintenance. Uh, and I'd say let's start it off by going with the GM product, known for reliability. That's right. You have one and only left you stranded a thousand miles from home. That's true, yeah. I had, <laughs> and it was an LS-based uh, one as well that right over Thanksgiving left me stranded in the middle of Nebraska with a uh, broken transfer case. So but, what, what is the update on the stranded Yukon before we get into the list? Has it, has it been saved? There's no update. They what do you mean it's no update? <laughs> Apparently, so there are these two towns in smack dab in the middle of Nebraska. One's called Grand Island, and one is what well, looks like Kearney, but they prefer it to be called Kearney. Uh, and the part is sitting in Kearney, 45 minutes away, needs to get to Grand Island, and they just can't get it over there for some reason. So my car is just sitting in pieces in Grand Island waiting for that part to go 45 minutes down the road. Does the U.S. Postal Service not serve that part of the country? I don't they, they know. They couldn't secure a horse and buggy to make the 45-minute trip? <laughs> Maybe they just had so many snowstorms that nobody's willing to leave their house. If you are in Nebraska <laughs> and want to help Brendan rescue his transfer case to go from Grand Lake to Kearney. Well, Kearney to Grand Island. I got 100% of those destinations wrong. <laughs> Brendan needs your help. Sure. His transfer case is desperate. <laughs> yes. But anyway, let's get to the list. Now we are talking about vehicles that, in our opinion, based on a little bit of a little bit of you know actual science and a lot of speculation, are going to be reliable. Yeah, and some anecdotal evidence. I mean, you know, everybody posting on forums and Facebook pages of what reliability they're getting from their cars isn't science, 
but these are generally the ones that are agreed upon by most people to be pretty reliable. And the YouTube comments. We get literally tens of comments every week. <laughs> yeah. One or two an hour. I mean, if they're like... <laughs> one or two a day. We can barely read them. They're coming in so fast. Yeah, every time we post, it doesn't matter what car it is. Well, it's not a Toyota, so, <laughs> you know, it's not going to be reliable because that's obviously when you're talking about an enthusiast vehicle, the number one most important thing is reliability. So anyway, the three people that are watching this are very vocal about what they think is reliable. So we have looked at your, your online rants. We have appreciated the commentary. We have let it soak in, and we've come together a nice, authentic list of semi-reliable classics. Absolutely. And as you can see if you're watching on YouTube, or as you can't see if you're listening on a podcast platform, number 10 is a Chevrolet Camaro. Yeah, and not just any Camaro. I went with, because again, I'm focusing on reliability. So in looking at different generations, I'm thinking to myself, if I'm going out to buy a Camaro... What's going to be the most reliable generation? And I have come up with the fourth generation, otherwise known as the F-Body, which was made from 1993 to 2002 with a refresh in 1998. Did you pick the ugliest generation on purpose? Oh, you're going to get a lot of hate on that <laughs> oh. one. <laughs> so some people will say they're the best looking generation. Others will say they're the ugliest. They're Either way, they are certainly polarizing. I've never heard um, anyone be like, yeah, those 90s Camaros, that is the pinnacle. My my best friend, well, he what? owns three F-Body, uh, well, a different F-Body Camaro. He owns two Camaros and one Firebird, which is essentially the same thing. He would think that this Camaro is better looking than the 60s Camaro. No. Okay, well, there you go. <laughs> That's but the he, issue. But for the money... He thinks it's a better value. Uh, okay, well, let's talk about it. So F-Body okay. Camaro, and what makes this one so special is the powertrain. Yeah, so this had, well, it depends on which generation you got. So if you got the first generation, they just had the like standard LT1 V8. But if you got the second generation, or the, the refresh, uh, built in 1998, those had the LS1, which are notorious for their reliability and their tunability. And it, I mean, think about it. The term is, oh, if you have a problem with your car, just LS swap it. We're talking about that engine, the LS1, which was a 5.7 liter V8 pumping out 305 horsepower in the Camaro. That was a lot back in the late 90s. That's a lot today. And the great thing about those LS engines, parts are everywhere. Even if you get an earlier um, uh, iron block unit, right? They are just so long lived. Uh, GM products, this is this. I was just having this conversation with myself in the mirror the other day. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah, I was. And I was thinking to myself, like, what is the best era for every car brand? And I would argue that the 1990s was the best era for General Motors into the early 2000s. Yeah. I think that they built the most innovative cars in a lot of ways. Some were successes. Um, some were failures, like the Aztec. Um, they were pretty good to look at, very reliable. They had the best seats in the industry. They were just great. You yeah. had the GMT 400 trucks and SUVs, the GMT 800 trucks and SUVs. You had C4, C5 Corvette. Uh, you had these Camaros. You just had, well, you had the Lumina, which is not oh, a great can't, example. Can't forget the Lumina. Can't forget the Lumina. <laughs> and but, the Monte Carlo. Oh, God. Don't even talk to me about the Monte Carlo. <laughs> but apart from that, the 90s Camaros and uh, 90s GM products and early 2000s, they were ace. Yeah, anything really with that LS motor in it, you're talking Suburbans, the trucks, the Camaros, the Corvettes, anything that they shoehorn that LS into 
is generally going to be a pretty darn reliable ride. And not only that, but they actually made one of the most reliable V6s back in that era as well, that 3.8 liter V6 that pumped out generally about 200 horsepower that they put in pretty much every front wheel drive sedan that they made, as well as the Camaro. So just think about that. If you got the 1998 or newer, or uh, I guess 1998 to 2002 Camaro, you could get GM's most reliable V6 ever made with 205 horsepower, or you could get their most reliable V8 ever made with 305 horsepower. I think it's just pretty good combination. You can't go wrong with either of them. They're both fantastic. You're 100% right. If you want speed, go for the V8. If you just want a car that looks cool, can't go wrong with the V6. And now you got me all excited about early 2000s GM products. And I want to talk about a vehicle that we just sampled at the dealer auction. Yeah. It just was like hiding in the corner. And we both took a look at it and be like, that doesn't seem right. We checked out <laughs> one of the most unusual SUVs, maybe of all time. What do we look at? Yeah. So Chevy made the Trailblazer, right? That's mm -hmm. It was a pretty basic, boring SUV. The only thing weird about that SUV that I thought was it came with a five-cylinder as standard, which was really interesting choice from GM. Was that the Trailblazer? A, I thought they had a six. Weren't they a six? I thought it was a five-cylinder, the entry I level. I think it might be the 4200. Oh, so the Hummers were fives. That's right. Someone but will it, let us know. Yes. I don't, either way, let me know and let us know in the comments. Maybe I'm wrong. But I thought the entry got, level was a five-cylinder. You got some, yeah. some number of cylinders in a line. So, yeah. like, if it was a five or six, but uh, Ian has a, a, the straight six 4.2, really bulletproof engine. And it's just so weird because you never think of General Motors of straight six engines. No. Um, but sure anyways, don't. keep going. Yeah, so they decided, well, what if somebody wants, you know, they're driving around their, their SUV and they've got something really tall and they just want a truck and they don't want to have to go buy another truck. Can we just find a way for them to convert their standard, boring, blobby-looking SUV into a truck mm -hmm. and they had a really interesting solution in doing that by making the X, the XUV. I think right. that's what they call it, right? The XUV where you could roll down the rear window, the rear hatch opened just like a truck tailgate and then it gave you a button mounted on the roof where you could retract the back like third of your roof all the way in to essentially turn it into a four-door truck. Unreal. Pretty wild. I mean, so basically, it's it's an SUV that's half of a convertible. Like the yeah. back half like slides forward and turns it into a convertible. And if you're watching on YouTube, I have the clip behind me. If you're not watching on YouTube, don't turn away from the podcast because things are about to get even weirder. But check it out over at Instagram or Table Classics on YouTube. We did a YouTube short showing how it works. But it's just nuts because it's like so unorthodox, right? And I, I think it was very problematic. I think oh, yeah. not a lot of them still work today, and a lot of them did leak back in the day. But the other cool thing is you had an entirely plastic-lined cargo area. So other typical SUVs would have carpet and speakers and leather, but in the XUV, you had this big plastic area so that you could kind of stick anything you wanted back there without getting it scratched up. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of, like, the Honda Ridgeline a little bit. Totally. It, it kind of had that feeling like how that Ridgeline has a fairly small truck bed that's plastic-lined but still pretty usable. People yeah. said it's like an avalanche, but... It's an SUV. So the Avalanche was like a truck thing, right? Exactly. Um, this had the integrated C-pillars and the little roof bit. You can't remove those. Yeah. But yeah, cool idea. Yeah, cool idea. I don't know about reliable, but it did make it into the reliability podcast, so that's something, right? 
<laughs> There's a lot of stuff that's going to make it into the reliability podcast that are not reliable. Like yeah. cast iron skillets. Oh, yeah? It's going to be a future well, tangent. Cast iron skillets, I will say, are probably one of the most reliable Yeah, not mine. Get. Mine has been very unreliable. Oh, really? Yeah, we'll talk about that later. Okay. This is why you don't want to click out. <laughs> Where else do you hear about Envoy XUVs, cast iron skillets? Oh, yeah. Man, we'll talk about a pizza place later. Oh gosh, we're we're losing them, Tommy. We're, we're losing, losing them. them. All right, we better get, go on to number back to nine. The list. Yeah, number nine. Uh, so I wanted to not fill it with a bunch of American and Japanese cars because that's typically what you think of when you're thinking of reliability. I mean, I know you all are laughing at me right now saying American reliability, but they were at some point. Uh, anyways, I wanted to get some European stuff on there, so I went and looked at what could be a European classic car that people could get. And I think one of the most reliable out there is the E30 BMW 3 Series, which was made from 1983 to 1994. Good choice. That's a, a really great choice. Now, when you think of reliability, the last thing you think of typically is a BMW from the 1980s. However, and once again, a little anecdotal, but go on Craigslist and try to find one of these Beamers with under 250,000 miles. And tell me I'm wrong. Now, they did have areas of issues, like they had these little electronic management computers, which always failed, and they weren't very good. But um, the car itself, and especially the engine, the powertrain, the transmission, the differential, they're virtually unkillable. This straight six, or even the four-cylinder in these BMWs, they will go hundreds of thousands of miles with little difficulty. And on top of that, they look great, and they're fun to drive. Yeah, I mean, this is back in the era where BMW and enthusiasts were really copacetic, right? Every, all the enthusiasts would wax poetic about BMWs because you could have a really fun to drive, entertaining car and have it be relatively reliable at the same time. Now, maybe recently they've kind of gone away from both of those ethos is quite a bit, but I would say that the 70s, 80s, and into probably the first half of the 90s, maybe yeah, maybe most of the 90s, BMW was doing some really great stuff, and they were relatively reliable as far as European cars go, and obviously just a blast to drive. Now, it's funny, um, after the E30, they went to the E36, which I think was still pretty strong, and then they went to the E46, which was a great car, but had a lot of issues, let's be honest about that, right? Sure. Um, and... I think especially as we saw like the E90s and the E92 era, like the quality really took a nosedive. But from what I've heard about the newer stuff, like the last couple of years, it's really on the way back up actually. Oh, really? The newest generation of six cylinders is really good. They really have a lot of their electronics figured out. So I'm excited to say that, okay, it took me an hour, but here's a terrible picture of a three series <laughs> from this era. Uh, now this is also, I think, the best looking era of BMW. Yeah, I would agree. The, the round headlights, the... Um size of the kidney grill being proportional, being to, proportional the car. to the car you know just the classic squared off lines i think it is really hard to be as far as this generation of bmws go and they're fun i mean they're great they're small right so they're, they're fun to drive they're lightweight their they're handling is a little unpredictable from this era they have a really tail happy but uh you had everything in the states from like a 318 to the 325 to the m3 if you want to spend a huge amount of money now the thing is is it's there are certain models which were problematic. So, like, they did the – my favorite one is the 325iX. Oh, with the all-wheel drive the system? all-wheel drive, but it had a yeah. really kind of 
problematic all-wheel drive system. Oh, really? Um, so there are certain things which are hard to find, certain things that are expensive to fix. But if you just get a standard E30 BMW, two doors, four doors, even one that's yeah. been vaguely well-maintained, it should last you a long time. Yeah, I think even, what did they have? The four-cylinder was the 318. Mm -hmm. Those are pretty are known to be pretty reliable. Um, you could even bump up to like the 325 IS, which had a fantastic sounding straight six, a little sportier suspension, a little bit of aero work. Um, you know, they're just they're just great little cars. I know you can get, find the E30 N3s, but they're just incredibly valuable nowadays. Yeah. But the uh, the rest of the E30s are still pretty pretty affordable. I mean, they're starting to creep up a little bit, but they're also pretty reliable. Yeah. Now the next car on our list is a car that for a while was I think the highest mileage car in history. Yeah, it was in 1998. Uh, we're talking, well, okay. So in 1998, a man by the name of Irv Gordon was certified as the highest, owning the highest mileage private vehicle driven by the original owner in non-commercial service. Wow, that yeah, was no, quite, the... quite a quite a mouthful and a lot of eliminating factors. Number there, of but... modifiers there <laughs> yeah. you found, but he exceeded 3.25 million miles in his Volvo P1800. Did you memorize all of those? Oh no, it's written down. <laughs> Highest mileage private vehicle. Driven by the original owner in non-commercial <laughs> service. Yeah, I had to write it all down to make sure that I got it correct. <laughs> That's but interesting. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so we're talking about the 1800 Volvos, which was a line of sporty two-door um, coupes and station wagons. So they, so the coupes were primarily the or the ones that you'd find. Those right. came out in 1961. They did, near the end of the production run, do... Um, like a, ES models, right? Yeah, exactly. The ES model where they gave it more of a station wagony mm -hmm. or a um, shooting brake look to it. Um, but the vast majority of them were the coupe. And I do think that those coupes are great. Uh, you know, they think weren't super powerful. They only had an inline four-cylinder pumping out about 100 horsepower when they first came out. Which over the years kind of went up little by little. Um, by 1969, they were putting out about 118 horsepower, but they were a fairly fuel efficient and reliable, low stressed four cylinder. Yes, I do agree completely. Now, they are expensive cars. That's all I have to say about that. Yeah. I have nothing else to say. So they were cheap for a long time, and now they're expensive. Yeah, well, I did look them up on Haggerty. Yeah, what are they worth? So Haggerty says right now that they're worth anywhere from 20000 to 35000 Okay. But keep in mind, you know, you're spending that on a car from the 60s that is very classic styling, beautiful going down the road, and it's going to be relatively inexpensive for you to maintain and keep going down on the road. And it could even be something you could work on yourself because they're just, they're dirt simple. You know, there's not much to break on them. And when something does break, it's relatively easy to get it, to get the parts and to fix it. Now, I do have to point out, just just putting this out there. Yeah. And I notice it's, abs I've, I've scanned the entire list. You've put it, you've done a great job putting it together, but you're missing the obvious choice on this list because I know you hate them. But a car that's gone more miles than the Volvo is an old Mercedes diesel. 
There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Brendan just doesn't like the Mercedes diesel thing. I was going to talk about those a little bit later. Were you? With, with another vehicle. Yeah. You were going to mention gonna, them, They were going to huh? get a mention. They were going to get a mention. Interesting. <laughs> now, I think an old Mercedes diesel still has the highest mileage ever for a commercial vehicle. It was like a taxi cab in Greece. Okay. Uh, I want to say one was driven like 4 million miles or some ridiculous number. Um, oh, here we go. No, it is lower miles. In 2004, a Greek taxi driver Gregorius, not going to say his last name, donated his 76 Mercedes 240D to the Mercedes-Benz collection with 4.6 million kilometers or 2.9 million miles. And it's the recognized highest mileage to date, but still the Volvo's higher. Although, here's a question. So I remember when um, this gentleman um, was doing his interviews, and I think he since passed away. Yeah. And I think Volvo actually gave him a car as well. Yeah, I think so. Uh, they were I like, wow, you've right. done such a great job. Here's another car. That's actually a tip. If you want a free car, buy a new car and drive it at least a million miles. Yeah. And try to get the publicity of the company. Because uh, there's this lady who did that for Hyundai. She had an Elantra, and she put like a million miles on it in the course of a few years, and they gave her a new car. That's a money-making tip. There yeah. was a guy with a Tundra, I think, too, which got a new Tundra after driving it a million miles. All you got to do is buy a car and then just start driving. Yeah. Tommy's money-making tip of the day is, I mean, spend your entire life driving one car, 3.25 million miles. There's a (laughs) Nissan guy, too. Man, it's a thing. This is like a trend. If you can put a million miles on a car and document it, they will give you a free car. Not officially. Don't come complaining when your ass is sore and you don't get a free new car. (laughs) But some of the time it happens. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said done but we're gonna we're gonna get the email tommy i put my toyota corolla over a million miles and toyota didn't care i want to yeah right <laughs> yeah, don't you you have to do a car surprising yeah you know go take a, a land rover and get it over a million miles and maybe they'll that's right maybe if they'll you, you can get one maybe to half a million they might okay let's not get there. too bold here <laughs> um now I here's where I'm a little confused. Uh, Irv, his name is Irv, right? Irv Gordon. Irv Gordon. Because yep. I think I remembered reading that he replaced a lot of things on that car. I'm sure. I mean, I mean imagine 3.25 million miles uh, <laughs> worth of wear and tear. I'm sure he went through a lot of tires, a lot of brakes, a lot of you know seals and gaskets and. Yeah. Who knows, you know? Let's see. Um, this So uh, he says the engine is original, although he had it rebuilt. That's pretty good. 667 oil changes. Um, so, yeah, 667, 400 spark plugs, but he never made an illegal U-turn. Oh, geez. <laughs> well, that's good. Well, while you're looking up all that, so 
in my research, what I found is in 1970, they actually went from a carbureted engine to a fuel-injected engine using the dreaded company Bosch. Why is that dreaded? Bosch it, builds it, everything for every car well, ever. I know, but like, if you think about some of like the Jaguars that have the, the Bosch fuel injection, aren't they known to be unreliable? Well, that's because no one else was building fuel injection. <laughs> it was just the, the fuel injection. But but here's the here's the tip, right? So in 1970, they replaced the, the carbureted with the, the Bosch fuel injection. And if you got the 1969, you had the most powerful version, which was 118 horsepower before the fuel injection. Um, and you got the standard carburation. So I think... That's the year to get. So I was wrong. He didn't replace that many things. Original really? engine and transmission. So very impressive to this car. I will give it that. Now, let's take a pause and take a moment of appreciation to a gentleman named Manny. A gentleman named Manny. A gentleman named Manny. Yep, this is our, our, our new segment. Manny has sent us a picture of his Lexus LS430. So oh. Manny um, follows us on Patreon and actually sent us a message saying that he purchased an LS430 after watching the video. I think I did it, but it was your car. Do you remember that? Yeah. I had my LS430. Uh, I think he mentioned that he got the ultimate luxury version, yep. which makes me a little bit jealous. Mine was not the ultimate luxury version. He sent us a message on Patreon. He says, after watching Tommy's review on the Lexus LS430, I went on the hunt for Godon. I scored a 2001 UL. Ultra luxury. Yep. With 26,000 miles, if you ever want to do a video, let me know. We'd always love to do a video on another one. And more importantly, if you want your car featured on the TFL Classics podcast, or if you have a question, or if you have a concern, or if you want to yell at us for looking funny, you can join our Patreon, patreon.com slash TFLcar. And um, for just a couple bucks a month, we'll uh, we'll interact with you there. We always message people back, and yeah. we'll get your car on the podcast or your question. Yeah, and maybe we should send out a message to Manny. I'd I'd love to check out his Ultimate Luxury Wouldn't edition. Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah, maybe we can show because those Ultimate Luxury editions were real interesting because they had um, Lexus's first ever adaptive cruise control. Wow. So it used a uh, radar-based LiDAR cruise control system. And I would love to see how after 20 years that works. That, that works. That'd be cool. Yeah. All right, moving on to number seven on our list. Thank you to Manny, by the way. A vehicle with some sporting potential. Yeah, so we've talked about a Camaro. If you want your muscle car, we've talked about a couple of European cars. And now it's time to introduce a Japanese classic, the Mazda Miata. And most of you, when you think of the Mazda Miata, you're thinking that cute little uh, convertible with the pop-up headlights. And I'm skipping right over that one because they're way too expensive. <laughs> and again, I'm also thinking reliability. Reliability is key, and pop-up headlights can be a problem, right? We've seen it with Case's Corvette. He had to fix his pop-up headlights that sometimes wouldn't want to open all the way, right? Uh -huh, yeah. So we're going with the second-gen Mazda Miata, otherwise known as the NB, which ditched those cool pop-up headlights for the more reliable fixed headlights. Boring fixed headlights. <laughs> sure, but reliability. You want us to talk about reliable cars. This one's more reliable than the first generation Miata. Well, the headlights are more reliable. Sure. What about the rest of the car? The rest of the car is mostly the same. <laughs> so I the, mean, it's a little bit wider, a little bit bigger, and... A little more comfy. Yeah. We're talking about the NB generation of Miata, if you're in the know. There you go. Next time you're at a car show, you can be like, nice NB. 
Yeah. Just make sure it is an NB or you're going to look weird. Um, 99 through 05, this car um, is – is um, it's fine. <laughs> Trying to get yourself excited about it. I'm really, really amping myself you up know, here. You know, I kind of like them, actually. They borrowed some of the styling cues from would you the fit, third gen RX-7. Would you fit in an NB Miata? I do. They're pretty tiny. I've sat in one. Yeah. I, and I mean, it's not comfortable, but I fit – you know, I can oh, I, see. I could sit in a washing machine. Doesn't mean that it's <laughs> something I want to go spend time in. Um, no, I, I mean, they're good cars, especially the Mazda Speeds, which are really cool. Sure. But, but again, adds a turbo, less reliable. Oh, my goodness. So we can't talk about it because it's not as reliable. So um, <laughs> 1.8 liter, four-cylinder, a whopping 140 horsepower. But the whole idea of the Miata was a smart one. When it launched in the NA generation, essentially they took the best of the British roadsters and then made it work in the rain and in the snow and in the cold and when it's dark and like the electronics worked and the wheels didn't fall off. Like it was, it was, they took the, they, it, it was better at being a car. Yeah, they took the essence of a Lotus Elan and then made it actually function. Uh, and they sold a bajillion of them and they continued to sell, which is pretty cool. And it's one of the last affordable sports cars you could still buy brand new. Absolutely. Yeah, I think I think the Miata is a great car. They have a storied history. Um and the second gens are super cheap, right? They're we're talking under $5,000 for a lot of them out there because they made a bunch of them. They're just they haven't caught on yet like the first gens have. Um, now's the time to buy them. They only weighed about 2300 pounds. They're pretty lightweight little machines. So even though it's only 140 horsepower, Still relatively quick. You know, it's not going to be dangerously slow on the highway. The one that I think I might go for is the 10th anniversary model. So in 1999, they came out with the 10th anniversary, which upgraded from a five-speed manual to a six-speed, giving you almost a 0.4-second 0-60 to time faster, going wow. from eight seconds to 7.6. Bilstein shocks, a limited slip differential, a sapphire blue paint, two-tone seats, a nardy steering wheel. And yeah, I mean, it just, it took the Miata, which was a fairly standard car, and spiced it up a little bit without sacrificing reliability. Oh, that's interesting. Now, here's an interesting question I think about. So we talk about the transmission, right? Sure. Um, you could get the NB Miata in both manual and automatics. Yes. Now... Obviously, the manuals now um, are more valuable. Oh, right? yeah. Because it's an enthusiast car, right? People want that, that experience. But as the number of people that go down in society um, that know how to drive a stick, do you think we're going to ever see a turning point where the automatics of these classics are going to be more valuable? Because nowadays, hmm. automatics are faster and they're like, um, uh, you know, they're better on track and they're, they're just so much better than the manual. So nowadays, you can, there's, there's like a legitimate excuse to buy an automatic in a sports car over a manual. Back in this era, the automatics were typically three or four speed slush boxes that were not very responsive and didn't chip very fast and kind of dampen the driving experience. But as we move to electrification, as less and less Americans know how to drive a manual transmission, do you think that the automatics are going to start increasing in popularity as a new generation wants to get into this car but can't drive the stick? So my take on that is going to be a little nuanced. First and foremost, I have the utmost respect for the upcoming generation of car enthusiasts. I think our young generations are still interested in learning how to drive a manual transmission, at least those that are enthusiasts about cars. Okay. You know, you, you have some that are – 
you're going to diverge a little bit. So you're going to have different types of enthusiasts. You're going to have the more techie type enthusiasts that are enthusiastic about electric vehicles. And you're going to have the type of enthusiasts that just want a good driving experience. And those, I think, will still buy and prefer manual transmissions. The cars that are not an enthusiast car that have manuals, I think, yes, they're going to plummet in value. But the cars that are still an enthusiast car, I think, will always have inherent value as a manual. Now, this is an article according to CBS News. This was from 2016. Um, and a, a report from U.S. News and World shows that only 18% of U.S. drivers know how to operate a stick shift. Uh, and only 5% of vehicles sold in the U.S. today come with a stick. I think it was probably lower even a few years later. Sure. And according to this article, third pedal is also bad for resale, averaging less, uh, average, an average selling for $2,000 less uh, than cars with an automatic. Now, it's probably factoring all cars. Right. Right, like a Subaru Impreza. Uh, or that kind of thing. But that's an interesting take. So you're saying that an enthusiast car, even though fewer and fewer and fewer people know how to drive it relative to the whole population, the car enthusiast folks are still going to be into that. Yeah. I mean, what percentage of the population are car enthusiasts? It's probably that's true. I would say they're probably in that 5%, maybe even less of the actual overall population of people that are, you know, watching our videos, listening to our podcasts. Um, that are interested in, you know, driving enthusiasm and actually care about the car that they take to and from work every day. And those people, I think, are going to drive the values on collector cars. Mm -hmm. When it comes to normal everyday cars, there will be no use for a manual transmission because no A, no enthusiast really cares, and B, the normal person that just wants a car to get to and fro won't want to row their own. And C performance is worse compared yeah. to the modern automatics fuel economy is worse compared to the modern automatics there's an interesting discussion um i'm just thinking like you also have the concern about, about access to the manual transmission sure because a lot of the especially as we move to electrification there's going to be fewer and fewer and fewer opportunities for young enthusiasts to get behind the wheel of a manual transmission and have that experience to learn how to drive it because it takes a lot of as nathan would say cojones <laughs> to go and buy your first car in a manual if you've never driven one, yeah. right? Now, there are programs like I just went to this just one. It's like four years ago. I went to this. Um, I think it was sponsored by Haggerty. But basically, owners that were insured by Haggerty of manual transmission cars would go to this event. And then basically teenagers from the area would come out to this event, take a class, and then practice driving your manual transmission car. Interesting. Which is Cool. Yeah. Right? 15 and 16-year-olds getting behind the wheel of a stick for the first time. I'm not sure I'd want to be that owner, though, because there was a quite the smell of clutch at the end of that day. <laughs> Let me tell you what. I, I hope the Hagger you, like, kind of compensated for, like, any sure. wear and tear on the cars, right? Uh, but, yeah, there were, like, people that would show up with, like, a Carmen Ghia was there, I think. Uh, Audi TT was there. Um, uh, Haggerty brought even a couple cars from their collection. So there were kids out there experiencing it. Um, I mean, that's really cool. But, again... What percentage of automotive drivers have even heard of Haggerty? Very, very tiny. Right. Yes, that's you true. know, like I, I would venture to say the amount of people that are insured by Haggerty for you know, in the overall community of drivers in the U.S. is in the single digits, right? And that's not like that's even smaller than the entire overall community of enthusiasts. Right. So I think again, it it is a smaller community than we. Than we think, but the enthusiasm helps keep the prices of these cars 
high. Now the I question think. is, um, what do you think? So there's been like companies like Lexus or Toyota now are manufacturing and coming up with concepts for a manual transmission in an electric car. What do you think of that? I think it just depends on how it's executed, okay. right? Because, um, you know, when like think about the power steering, right? When we were or this drive-by wire. When it first started coming out, they just came out with vehicles that were numb and vague and not super enthusiast-oriented to drive. But lately, they've been getting better and better. And now, some of the drive-by-wire cars, you have a hard time being able to discern the difference between that and a true, I don't know what you call the traditional type, but like drive-by-mechanical linkage Um Vehicle. So the same thing goes with the manual transmission. It comes down to execution. Are they going to make it where it really feels like a genuine trans manual transmission to drive? Or is it going to be just something that feels numb and vague? And if it feels numb and vague, I think it's going to flop. Yeah, I, I, that's interesting. But the thing with which I, I'm a little bit concerned about is... Um, you know, obviously, in a gasoline vehicle, you need gears or a transmission... Um, to deliver the power from the engine to the ground. On an electric vehicle, you can do that with direct drive. Sure. And they're very efficient with direct drive. So are we going to sacrifice performance in a big way by going to a manual transmission in an electric car if it's not needed at all? Like in a gasoline car, you need some kind of transmission. Sure. Right, be it a CVT or a torque converter automatic or a dual clutch or a manual. In an electric vehicle, you don't. You just go bloop right to the well, wheels. But let me ask you this. Is the performance, the new Supra, right? They yes. just brought back the manual transmission. Uh-huh. Did the performance take, uh, did the performance go down going from the automatic to the manual? Probably a little bit, but. But is that, does that concern the enthusiasts that it, the performance is slightly less? No, but my concern is like, you still, the transmission is still pivotal to the driving experience. Sure. You can't drive a Supra with no transmission. You can't just bolt the engine to the wheels and have it work, right? Okay. But an electric car, it does work just having no transmission. It works fantastically with no transmission. Fantastically? Is that a word? I don't know. But um, is, is adding a transmission just going to add complexity and, for the sake of complexity just to be a little bit more fun? I don't know. I'd love to have a transmission that has a purpose in an EV. Yeah. Like the Porsche Taycan has that two-speed, which is cool, uh, automatic, to increase the top speed so they can get like the really fast top speeds in the Taycan. So there is a purpose there, which I appreciate. But like a one-two shift, that doesn't get... That's not a ton of fun. Well, I guess you know, time will tell. Time will tell. We'll figure it out. Yeah. Now, the next car on our list, Brendan, is the Toyota FJ40. Which I know very little about, so I'm hoping to lean on you a little bit with these. But I would assume, being a Toyota, it's going to be reliable, right, as most Toyotas are. Um, and you, you had one of these briefly, didn't you? I did. It was pretty reliable. Now, the next car on our list is the Town Cruiser. <laughs> here's, the, here's the thing about the Land Cruiser. is It's like the pinnacle of reliability. There's yeah. nothing else we need to add. Any, it can be like there's some cars are like, oh, you don't want to buy that generation. It's not very good. Any generation Land Cruiser, be it a 40 or a 55 or an 80 or a 100 or a 70, like they're all going to be super reliable. They're all super long-lived. The FJ40 um, was essentially the vehicle that 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 um, took the popularity of Land Rover away from the African continent. Because the African continent, for a while there, a lot of people's first time viewing a car was a Land Rover with the series, right? Sure. But then Toyota proved that they could do that but better. And they did, and they sold them for decades and decades, and they don't die. And even if they're crappy like ours was, they still work perfectly. They're just great cars. 
But I think everyone knows that. So I want to go on to the next car. Do yeah. you get it? Well, I think, I don't know if there's anything I'm going to add to the Land Cruiser conversation. Well, I mean, I couldn't make this list without talking about the Land Cruiser. <laughs> because uh, you and I both know that if I did make this list and didn't talk about the Land Cruiser, every comment would be, how could you have possibly made this list without and, <laughs> and not mention the Land Cruiser? In fact, yeah. we just did a video that hasn't come out yet, or maybe, I don't know, depending on when this podcast comes out on our Buyer Bus series on Classics, where we found a 100 series Land Cruiser at auction. It was a little, little rough around the edges, but it had 400,000 miles on it. Right. And that's the highest mileage vehicle I have ever seen at a dealer auction. Yeah, I mean, the Land Cruiser, even to this day, it's built in its own factory, right? It's not built alongside the Forerunner. It's not built alongside even the, um, I don't know, pick your Toyota. It's built with the Lexus and the Toyota, the right. LS or LX and the Land Cruiser. And they build them um, to such a high standard. I mean, Toyota will never tell you exactly what they're st- – every manufacturer has a standard that they judge their car to live on. They'll never make that public. The public out – their their public oh man I just can't talk their public description will be that the car will obviously last the warranty period and much longer right but if you peek behind the curtain typical vehicle will typically last is designed to last before major mechanical failure 150,000 miles but okay from the inside people I've talked to and the reputation that the Land Cruiser has gained the Land Cruiser is one of the only vehicles on the road that won't last 150 but is targeted to last like half a million between 250 and half a million wow so that's, that's why they last forever and they're just amazing um but i can't enter that conversation sure yeah i mean i can talk about the one f engine said. yeah i can talk about the one f engine and the way it's put together and how you know the, the fj40 evolved into the 70 and then they're hugely popular in other markets but uh everything's been said about the land cruiser well and that's in general is the problem with creating this podcast is all the reliable performance car or all the reliable classic cars that you can get have already been talked about but by not, somebody yes but not in the list where they've also talked about cast iron pans <laughs> that's where we that's what Is this we bring where we're fitting table. in your cast iron pan tangent we can we can talk about it now i got a cast iron pan for christmas you did yes okay. it's from 1924 well, well that's the best kind of cast iron pan from what i understand if you buy a new one, you have to take the time to season it. But one from the 1920s <laughs> has your grandma's and your grandma's parents yeah, cooking oils seeded into that pan. I was going to say, I think you're going to say my grandma's seasoning. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, that doesn't sound very hygienic. No, just the food that your family's been cooking for over 100 years is seasoned into that pan. But I don't know why it's so hard. Like, it's just, it should be a pan, right? But it, it, it's, it's so finicky. It doesn't like the same temperatures as a normal pan. You can't use soap on it. You got to oil it up. It's just a lot of work. It's, I mean, it's very cool. Yeah. Apparently, it makes better food if I knew how to use it properly. That's what I hear, too. I, I've never owned one myself. I actually bought one as a gift for my brother once, and they were elated. Well, there you it. go. Yeah. Why don't you so, own one? Because every time I look into it, I'm like, eh, it's just too much work. I'll just grab this crummy old crappy pan <laughs> I have sitting in the cupboard and just use that thing again. That's true because you have to like oil it, right? You got to yeah. you got to like work work the, the the material. I clearly don't know enough about it, but imagine if there was a car like that that everybody it's like it gets there handed is. down generation to generation and you have to like oh, well, I guess yeah, you do have to change the oil in it. It's called an MG. It's just <laughs> yeah. constant work with not that much enjoyment. <laughs> Why is it that every shipping container, or no, why is it that every storage locker in the U.S. has some old MG in it? 
You found a storage locker with an MG in it? Everyone you see on, on, on YouTube or on Instagram, there's like some some like crusty old guy lifting open his container and there's like, wow, an MG. And it's That's... always under covers. And it's never like a special MG. It's always like a 78 MG midget. Do you want to know why? Why? That's because the owner died before they could get that thing to run right. That's right. That is true. <laughs> My neighbor, crusty old MG in the garage. Yeah. I keep trying to buy it from him and he's like, I just, I'll get to it. I'm like, you're never going to get to yeah. it. Eventually, at some point, he will die. He's like in his 50s. And then... Could be a yeah. long wait. <laughs> well, yeah. It, he Eventually, at some point, like everybody else on the planet, he will die. It still won't run right. And maybe maybe you'll have an opportunity to buy it then. And then it'll die before it runs... Or you'll die before it runs right. It's interesting well. because every <laughs> MG, I think, is purchased from a dead person. Yeah. <laughs> they only... all love them to death. They just... The cars <laughs> don't love them back. There's only two people that sell MGs. Dead people... Or the ancestors of dead people. Yeah. You know? Exactly. Now, um, the next car on our list, Brendan is so excited about. He has, for some reason, photoshopped a giant picture of the seats. Well, I, I gave you that image so you can put it on there because I'm, I'm just talking about a seat here. Well, why, so did I'm you, not... why did you print it out? I mean, if you're watching on YouTube, look, we got, like, we got like our list, got all the information, and there's just a giant picture of it. That's how much Brendan likes this car. Yes, I wanted to emphasize that the reason why this next car is on our list is not because of the car itself. Although the car itself is fine. It's nothing special. It has the world's most comfortable seats I have ever sat in. And I am still to this day looking for a good one. And I'm talking about the Lincoln Town Car. Not just any town car. The last generation of it, made from 1998 all the way till 2011. I mean, it, the seats are the best part. Don't get me wrong. But... <laughs> They're also super reliable. That's why I can talk about them on this list. They came with Ford's Ford's, uh, Ford's 4.6 liter V8. Depending on the year you bought, anywhere from 205 horsepower to 239 horsepower. But these 4.6s are just known to go on and on and on and on forever. It's kind of like Ford's version of your Mercedes diesel that you love so much because they were in taxi cabs, they were in executive cars, they were in limos, and they just kept going and going. They kind of have a depressing interior. Yeah, it's it's just. Very, I mean, the way it looks isn't great. It's just. It's very frumpy, you know. <laughs> the whole car is kind of frumpy looking, you know, like to be those, honest with you. But. Like those little like coffee doilies that like your grandma gives you yeah. when, when she gives you like a tea on like a chipped <laughs> mug. That like little like. Really? I've never gotten a coffee doily from my grandma. You got a, you got a cool grandma. It sounds like but. I got a I got a frilly coffee doily grandma. Okay, but the, the coffee doily is what this car reminds me of. Okay, you know you look at it and you'd be like, was that ever cool? You ever like you're like, does that was that ever a good looking thing? Do you think anyone like in the 1800s was like, ooh, that's a sexy coffee doily? That's what I think about the interior of the town car. Well, and when this was out, it was not very loved because the interior was. Frumpy and boring, and well, it's a cop car interior. You know, yeah, they they didn't do much with it, but so so talk me through the seats, because I remember specifically I was sitting in my office and Brendan comes barging in one morning. He's like, I got to type out these seats. <laughs> I was like, what? I can't explain it. It's they're not great looking seats. They are not good looking no, seats. No, but once you sit, like just do yourself. Everybody listening to this podcast or watching us on YouTube, do yourselves a favor. Go find the newest, nicest town car you can that's for sale and go test drive it just so you can put your butt 
in that comfy seat, and you will be forever changed as I was when I found one at the auction with only like 100,000 miles on it. It was a 2010, and I sat in the seat, and I'm just like, where has this been all my life? <laughs> I want this seat in my life, and I need it, and I, I almost bought it. I'm I'm a very shrewd negotiator, so uh, I didn't quite get it. Uh, went a little bit more than what I was willing to spend, but I don't know, maybe... Maybe I talk about it so much now I should have maybe paid a little bit more and, and actually got it, but I will I will one day have one of these Lincoln Town cars. You really like the seats that much. They're that good. But do you want to buy it just for the seat? Primarily. Because I mean, it's it's a comfy it's a comfy ride that's quiet. It'll get you to and from. It'll be fairly reliable. And I mean it's if you got the nicer versions, it's got a soft closing trunk. Is this the Panther platform? Yes. Yeah. People do love these. I see this a lot online. Absolutely. Yeah, they made them as a foreign crown. They, Very aggressive about the, loving them, too. I mean, I'm in trouble. Um, I'm going to have yeah. to change my name and address here. <laughs> they were good cars. You know, they, they were known as taxis for a long time because they just kept going and going. And they made them as cop cars. And they were just – they were – a great platform, and the Lincoln is the best version of them, I think. You know what my favorite seat is? What's that? The Checker Cab. I sat in the really? back of a Checker Cab once, and I was just amazed. Really? It's like sitting in, in like, potato soup. You just <laughs> sink in, and you just let the world kind of waft around you. This I must have like been the a Lincoln. really worn-out Checker Cab. It was a very worn-out <laughs> Checker Cab. But, yeah, I was, like, sitting down in a nice pot of chili. I mean, you have to admit, though, a good, comfy car seat yeah, is kind of hard to beat. I do like a comfy car seat, exactly. But, like, I like the really comfy ones from, like, the 70s that have, like, the like the sure. separate cushions. This just looks like, I don't know, it looks like a hospital <laughs> seat like you'd expect at an airport. Yeah, they don't look great. But they're, <laughs> like I said, you have to sit in them to really know the comfort. They are so good. Brendan printed out a picture Yeah. to put on his fridge. <laughs> He's going he's gonna to paste this picture on I'm his fridge. put it on the fridge here in the office so everybody can look at these so everyone can. Is this a bench, too? Is this a bench yeah, seat? Yeah, so oh you, could sit, you could sit six people in these things because you got three across and two rows. Hmm. Yeah, they're, 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 they're fine cars. But for some reason, Brendan wants the long wheelbase one. Yeah. Well, the only reason I want that is because I like high-mileage cars. I'm one of those weirdos. That the higher the mileage, the more I'm attracted to it. You should about the Land Cruiser. What did that thing sell for? Well, $2,250. It did? Yeah. That's it? That's it. It sold? It sold. Why didn't you buy it? Uh, there were too many problems with that one. 400,000 mile Land Cruiser. Yeah. It did have a lot of problems. Yeah, it needed a lot of work. Yeah. I mean, if I could find a car, like my dream car has a million miles on it, but has been maintained meticulously. Okay. Like, Why the exterior's got lots of rock chips and scratches, so it doesn't matter. You know, the seats are maybe a little bit worn, but it's been maintained meticulously, so it runs perfectly. You'd rather have a million-mile car over a 100,000-mile car? Yes. Why? Because I can drive the wheels off of it, and it won't depreciate a single penny. <laughs> I don't think a town car can depreciate very much as it is. It's already like four it's grand. True. Well, like I got a Mini Cooper with sixty thousand miles, and I'm sorry, guys. I know we're mentioning a oh, Mini geez. Cooper again. People are going to start throwing with things. Sixty thousand miles on it, but uh, every mile I drive on that thing, I'm like, oh, it just lost a few cents in value. On the you drive really think to work about today. that? I do. But it's old. It's 2007 or something, right? Yeah, but. I, 
I'm when it comes to cars, I have the mindset of never losing any money on them. Oh, that's dangerous mindset, especially yeah. if you're dealing with old cars because you I just know. bleed money. I if a car is under a thousand miles, I wouldn't want to drive it. But once it hits fifty, just, just stick that thing in high gear and go hit the freeways. Yeah, yeah, especially if it's like a depreciated car like that. You know, if it was like a special car from the seventies or the sixties or the fifties, I'd be like, oh, want to keep the miles off of it. Right. If it's a fifteen-year-old name that cannot be said on YouTube because people will get mad at us. I don't mind. You can drive that thing. Sure. But that's why I'm also kind of deterred <coughs> from low mileage examples of cars. Like you see these cars that go for silly amounts of money with like 1600 miles on it. Why? What does it matter? Are you So you buy this Toyota Supra, right? This third gen Toyota Supra that's got 1600 miles on it and you pay $200,000 for it. You can't drive that thing. I know. Because the second you put another 400 miles on it, it's worth less. It's true. It's a good it's point. It's just a shame. All right, next car on our list, the Ford Mustang. My favorite generation of Mustang, actually. Yeah? I love these. I think those are awesome. The fifth generation of Mustang called the S197. Um, and these cars, similar engine to that Crown Vic we were talking about. Yeah, they have the 4.6 liter V8. Um, it, it is a similar engine, but I think they went with... It was upgraded a little bit. What was it? Was it three valves? Yeah, I think it was three valves versus the, the two valves or single valve. Did they have is three? what it was. Yeah, I think I think that's what it was. It was 4.6 liter V8, put out 300 horsepower. We're talking a car that did 0 to 60 in 4.9 seconds. So not bad for early 2000s because this is from 2005 to 2009. Um, and this was a modular V8. Yeah, it says here, yeah, three valves is what they put in the, the GT. So someone will leave me a comment below. So the two-valve 4.6 was really good. Yes. I'm wondering if the three-valve is problematic. I'm wondering if you put the wrong know. car on the list. I I mean, I would think that they're fairly reliable as well. I mean, when we're talking Ford V8s, it's the 5.4 that's unreliable, right? Well, yeah, those Tritons are pretty bad. Those yeah. are the ones you want to avoid. I haven't heard anything about if the 4.6s are bad. I know they're good in the Crown Vicks and the Lincoln Town cars, and I would assume that with these, you're just adding an extra valve that can't be that unreliable, right? <laughs> nah, it's a bold move. I don't know. Someone <laughs> let me in the comments section below. Now, what, one car I know that is reliable is if, if you're a little scared by the S197, the SN95, the previous oh, yeah. gen, and the new Edge Mustangs, super reliable. Sure. Uh, if you can, especially the two-valve 4.6 engines are just like... They're slow, but they go forever and they make cool sounds. That's a really good car, by the way. Really like yeah. those. We had one. We did. A, we had a series on one, and they just are lovely, lovely machines. Yeah, I just didn't want to talk about a car we had already uh, mentioned before. But I will say, ugly. The fifth generation, I think, is the best looking Mustang ever, apart from I the '65 and maybe some of the fastback stuff in the late '60s. But that's just a beautiful design. You know what I think was the best looking version of it was the Bullet. The bullet was cool. I, I did give you an image on that if you wanted to yeah. pull it up for our YouTube people. Um, and the bullet, it came out in only two years, 2008 and 2009. And it came in this dark highland green or a black exterior without that rear spoiler. So it was a much more simplified look. Um, it had a cold air intake, improved engine calibration, and a revised exhaust system, which was specifically designed to mimic the sound of the Mustang that they used in the Bullet movie. Wow. Which I thought was really interesting. It, it only upped, upped the horsepower to 315, but, I mean, just 
the look of it is super sleek. And those five-spoke wheels, which are so yeah. cool. Yeah, great car. Look, it's a great-looking great. car. I'm surprised they're so valuable. You said twenty-six grand according to Haggerty. Yeah, I was actually going to say in the podcast that that's the one to get. But as soon as I saw the values of them, I was like, oh, never mind. I would probably actually, if I were to get one, I would just go for a standard GT. Yeah, so those, I was just looking at them today because I almost bought one at auction last week. Um, those are like uh, like 12 to 13 for a really good one. Sure. Um, uh, you could also go for the GT500, the Shelby, that used a 5.4 supercharged V8, four valves per cylinder, 500 horsepower. Those are going to be around 30 grand, though. Yeah, they're going to be a little more expensive. But if you compare it to the Bullet, which is only five grand less but a heck of a lot less performance... I'd say it's still a pretty decent bargain. I just, I just love these cars because um, I remember Gran Turismo 4 featured an S197 really? Mustang GT. and my favorite car. I just thought it was the coolest thing when I was a kid. It's funny how video games can have such an impact on you. Um, and we just drove one at auction, and it was pretty cool. Six-speed yeah. manual. I dig it. And the retro interior, too, I think is really cool. And I think I, I had one as a rental once that you could actually change the color of the instrument cluster. I don't know what year they introduced that, but I know of those that generation Mustang, it's, at some point you could change the instrument cluster color, and I thought that was a really cool feature. Yeah, they were just really cool cars. Yeah, I'd like to own one day. One day, they're not quite cheap enough, but one day they'll be cool. They'll get there. Number three on the list, a car we both know quite a bit about, a car we've both owned, actually. Yeah. From reliability, it's hard to beat the Jeep Cherokee. Yeah, and we are talking about just the Cherokee. Um, we could mention the Grand Cherokee, but those have a few more bells and whistles, which, again, decrease reliability, unfortunately. <laughs> so I'm not allowed to talk about it here, but the uh, first gen of the Jeep Grand, or the, sorry, the Jeep Cherokee, if you got it with the four liter engine, those engines are just known to go on and on and on. And it's, it's one of the few um, Jeep Dodge Chrysler products that I think is known for its longevity. Yeah, uh, the XJ Cherokee is introduced in the 80s, sold through 2001. Fantastic. You got to get the 4-liter, one of the best engines ever made. Uh, good automatics, the AW4 automatics are good. You can get them with a 5-speed manual. You can get them both 2 and 4 doors. Solid axles, front and back. Simple, basic 4-wheel drive. Comfortable, good size. They do have an overheating issue, so you got to watch that out, as I found okay. out. But apart from that, the XJ Cherokee, one of the greatest vehicles, I think, maybe ever. They're just such a versatile platform. They're good for, in commutes. They're great off-road. Um, they're just, they're classy. You know, what other vehicle, apart from like a Range Rover, is classy, it's fairly comfortable, and you can drive everywhere. You know, it's cool. Yeah, it is one of the rare ones, and unfortunately, everybody that we're talking to already is aware of them. Yeah, because, they figured it out. Yeah, the values have shot up, and they're, I mean... For what a car you could have bought for less than 5k a few years ago, you're talking now, you know, you're gonna probably spend for a good one well over ten thousand dollars, fifteen thousand dollars in some cases, I think. Um, and at that value, my interest wanes a little bit. Uh, I think there's a few other things I would rather have, but it is hard to beat the off road ruggedness, the square body coolness and the reliability of those uh, Cherokees. So I, I'm going to show you a picture here. This was my exact Cherokee. This is the car I own. Ready? Boom. Wow. Look at that. So I bought this on Craigslist for $3,300. Um, 
as this was a, like four years ago, five years ago, right when they were starting to appreciate, and I was gonna do the thing everyone does where you lift it and then cut it up and do cool tires. And then I did a video and I was like, oh my God, that Jeep's so clean, you can't do anything with it. And I'm like, well, shoot, what do I do with this thing? Yeah. So I like stuck it on bring a trailer. I'm like, ah, screw it. We'll just stick it up there. And it sold for $9,700. First Jeez. car I've ever made money on. I know. First car? Wow. Yeah, I've, I've lost more than $9,700 over the years, <laughs> but first one I've ever made money on. I bet it felt good. It did feel good. And then someone resold it for fourteen grand, then bring a trailer like two years later. Oh my gosh! And I would not pay. I wouldn't pay ninety seven hundred dollars for a Cherokee, let alone fourteen. Like they're good cars. They're fantastic classics, but they're just so common. It's hard to spend that kind of money on one. You know that Cherokee is the is the first time that I had ever heard of you guys. Oh, really? The blue one? Yeah, because the detailer that you used in Boulder was the same detailer that I was using, and he mentioned to me, he's like, "Hey, have you ever heard of TFL?" And I'm like. No, he's like, well, they brought this Cherokee to me that they were talking about. And they said just what he said to me, just what you did, that you were planning on doing all these fun things to it. But you were so distraught because it was such a clean, nice example after he cleaned it up that you just had a hard time chopping it up and doing anything with it. So you guys just moved on. I just yeah, I sold it. Yeah, I just didn't know what to do with it. But it's a great vehicle. Strongly recommend it. I just don't think I could justify paying fourteen grand for it. Now next up on the list, something a little bit more sporty, a car I know almost nothing about. That's why Brendan is here because he is an expert, or at least a Googling expert at yeah. finding information <laughs> about the Honda CRX. Yeah, so there were two generations of the CRX. The first one came out in 1984 and sold through 1987. Is that the one you like? That's the one I like. First gen, okay. Yeah, so they're a bit more squared off, a little more boxy. The first gen and the second gen don't look radically different, to be honest no. with you. The, most people wouldn't be able to tell the differences. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you could. But the base model came with a 1.3-liter four-cylinder pumping out a whopping... 60 horsepower. But it got like 50 MPG. It did, yeah. yeah. That's the one we got featured here. It's called the HF. It was a high-efficiency model, yeah, but not fast. Yeah, well, they only weighed 1,800 pounds. There really wasn't much to them, and they were very simplistic-type machines. Personally, the one that I would have is the first gen with the SI. Mm. Uh, those had a 108-horsepower, 1.6-liter engine. Um Still not super fast. I mean, we're talking zero to 60s of close to 10 seconds, um, but they are relatively affordable. Haggerty was saying their average transaction for these, the SI, is about $7,000. Wow, that's not horrible. Yeah. They're coming up in value, though. They are. They're definitely coming up, especially a good SI is going gonna, is gonna to start running you some money. And then the second gen, a um, little bit more powerful, right? A little, little bit more modern. My, my dad had one, actually. He loved it. It was bright yellow. Uh, these are cars, though, that were driven hard, modified poorly, and then thrown away, unfortunately. Yeah. So they are hard to find. But if you can get one in original condition, they are extremely reliable. Fantastic choice. Yeah. And I know both you and I are, uh, oh gosh, our second mention of the Mini Cooper is in a reliable Oh, podcast. man. We're both Mini Cooper fans. But if you wanted a Mini Cooper that was more reliable, I I venture to say that the Honda CRX would be your best option because it does have that little squared off, tiny little car with the hatchback, you know, little fun thing to toss around. I'll bet it handles fantastic mm -hmm. on corners um, and just a fantastic little car, but it's reliable on like the minis. All right. Well, now we said the word three times. Everyone's <laughs> definitely gone, but we got to talk about the number one car on our list. 
because we said we'd circle around back to it, and we have circled around back to it. That is the Lexus LS 400. Yeah, so there's a the first two generations of the LS were both called the 400. The third gen was also called the 430, which is what our Patreon, is that what you call our, our, our patron? Our, our Patreon patron, our Manny. Our Patreon patron, Manny, sent to us, and all three generations are super reliable. Um, the LS430s actually have shot up in value recently, which I'm sure Manny saw when he went to go buy his, especially with that low of miles. Um, but the LS400s can still be had for relatively cheap money. They, yes, that's right. Uh huh. And I think they're um, good looking cars, super comfortable, powered by big V8s, right? Um, yep. They were meant to go up against the 7 Series and the S Class and dual exhaust up back. They were pretty cool looking little cars. Yeah, do you remember the ad that was out when these things came out where they balanced all the champagne glasses I do. on the hood of that? I think that was so cool that they were so meticulous about the engineering quality and the smoothness of their V8 engines that the first ad that they introduced the car was them putting a bunch of champagne glasses on the hood and pouring champagne to show that none of it spilled a single drop while the engine was running. Now, do you have any updates on your LS430? My LS430 is probably at a Copart auction somewhere. So Brendan ran into some stuff. Yeah. On the road. What happened? You were just driving along? Yeah, so I was on a road trip out on the East Coast to go into a friend's wedding. And uh, one of those big trucks carrying a bunch of things of concrete that they just picked up off the road uh, bounced over a bump and dropped a basketball-sized piece of concrete onto the road. And the car in front of me hit it and shot it at me, which then hit my headlight and went underneath my car, Ugh. doing a whole mess of damage that, to the naked eye, you didn't really see much, but we're talking, it, it punched a hole in my gas tank, it bent the frame, mm -hmm. it uh, dented the floor pan of the car and cracked the headlight and- Was the headlight cracked? Yeah, the headlight was cracked wow. because of it. It, was, it did a lot of damage, and so they ended up totaling out my car. So here's a question for you. Yeah. We got this fantastic list of 10 cars. Which one are you taking home? If you could own any of the cars on the list, we got the Lexus, we got your comfy seat car, we got a couple Mustangs on this puppy. What do you, what, which one is speaking to you? So I would have said the LS430. Yep. But because I like variety and I've done that already. I would take the Lincoln. Oh, my God. I would take the Lincoln town car in that super comfy seat. How old are you? <laughs> wow. Maybe give it another 10 years and you'll want the Lincoln, too. Now, what about a Marauder? Do you remember the Mercury Marauder? Sure. Yeah, those are cool. I mean, they added a little bit of performance to it, but you're sacrificing ride quality because they got those big, beefy wheels on there, and the seats are not as... The Mercury's are not as comfortable as the Lincoln's. Now, you know what car I would take? What's that? Of the 10 on the list? Of the 10 on the list. What's your car you're driving home? The Nissan Hardbody. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> per the rules, Brendan, we have to bring up the we Nissan We have to bring pickup. up the Nissan Hardbody. That's right. We've talked yeah. about it in every single Classics podcast, and this is not going to be an exception. The D21 Hardbody is the winner of today's podcast, as always. The best truck known to man. They are reliable. They are reliable. Yeah, I just I, I have a hard time talking about cars multiple times, but... We've talked about it at every we podcast. We have to talk about this one, so we have to do it again. So, yes, 
the Nissan Hardbody is the one to get. The Nissan Hardbody. Yeah, or exactly the Pathfinder, right. which is essentially the same thing, just with nope. seats instead of a bed. Got to be a Hardbody. Got to be a Hardbody. That's it. That's, <laughs> that is the winner of today's video. As always, it's got to be the winner because it's just the greatest truck known to the. It's the best vehicle a man has ever built. Yeah. Or women, actually. The, but I'm sure, I'm sure women there are would, women on the assembly line there. They yeah. would love to own the Nissan Hardbody. That's Everyone. right. Everyone. That's Why the wouldn't pinnacle. You? Yeah. Of automotive engineering. Everyone should own a hard body. Now, Brendan, if folks want to find more of us, where can they do that? Uh, at Patreon. So if you join us on Patreon and you ask a question or tell us about a cool car that you bought because of our advice, we will mention you here on the podcast. And if you want to see less of us, check out Motor Trend. There's none of us on Motor Trend. Yeah, we're not there at all. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so I saw these guys. That's a great plug there. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> what a way to end the podcast. Yeah, if you don't want to see us, you can go to any other outlet, except for TFL Classics, because we're on there as well. So yeah. check, check out TFL Classics if you want to see us. Don't check out TFL Classics if you don't want to see us. That is yeah, the if, top Yeah, if our tip. voices annoy you, don't watch TFL Classics. You probably won't enjoy it. But... If you're listening on a podcast form and haven't watched us on YouTube and you want to see what we actually look like in person. Don't. It's not worth it. <laughs> stay in your podcast. Stay in your podcast platform. It's not worth seeing us in person. Yeah. Well, you know. That's if, right. There are people that pay to see freak shows, right? You know, you can, on, on YouTube, you can watch us for free. Oh, my gosh. I almost forgot. We got to read some comments. Oh, that's right. It's the most important part of the show. If you've stayed till this part, you're in for a treat. We're I want to read some of the meanest comments people have said. I think uh, our latest buyer bus had some particularly mean oh, ones that great were quite one. fun. So we do this video series at TFL Classics called ooh, Buy or Bust, where we go out and we find three cool, quirky, unusual classics at the auction. We tell you whether or not you should buy or bust them, and then we predict what they sell for at auction. Then we find out whether or not we're right or wrong. And in this episode, we did cars we would never buy, cars we dislike. Yep. And my cars were not very controversial, the Chevy Aveo and the first-gen Nissan Leaf. Nobody likes an Aveo, and the Nissan Leaf is driven by teachers, and they, they died. But Brendan went ahead and chose the Mitsubishi 3000 GT, which is a performance Japanese 1990s car. Well loved, and some of the comments here are quite legendary. Yeah, it has uh, quite a devout community that love those cars, and um, you guys blasted me pretty hard. I mean, to be fair, I would say there was a mix of people in there that also agreed with me I also that those got, 3000 GTs weren't great. For the record, the number one comment is, if the Aveo had a mini badge, Tommy would be in love. <laughs> Yep. So it's probably it not far badge, off. Yeah. If it had a mini badge, would you love that Aveo? No, that thing is a rot box. <laughs> um, let me let me let me read some. Dale says he gets excited every time he sees a new buy or bust video posted. Thanks, Dale. Um, Paul says that car was amazing along with the Dodge Stealth. Here we go. First one against you. I can't believe that guy doesn't like it, especially being a car guy like he is. One of his enemies must have had one or something. Yeah, actually, um, no one I knew owned a 3000 GT. Uh, I think there was one comment on there that said something along the lines of, uh, some guy must have boinked my girlfriend that owned a 3000 <laughs> GT. And, well, no, unfortunately, for your entertainment purposes, that never happened to me. Uh, fortunately for me, it never happened. But, yeah, I actually haven't ever known anyone to have a 3000 GT. I've just... Uh, never really liked them and i am a car guy and and let's be honest a lot of you are car people as well 
And I'm sure there are cars out there that you dislike that the vast majority of people do like. So just because that's my one opinion doesn't make me that much less of a car guy. Alex Stewart, he got bullied in high school by a guy that had one. There we go. You were probably yeah. in high school in the 90s, right? I'm not that old, Tommy. <laughs> I, gradu- in I graduated 1890s? in 04. <laughs> I'm convinced but anyways, Brendan's yeah. high school girlfriend left him for a dude with a three that We're really going there after the high school thing I know. Here. See, that's just the thing, is people love their 3000 GTs so much that when I... The thing Go about, after the car. They take it personally as if I'm, like, personally offending them. The thing about the 3000 GT, though, is it, like, it was objectively worse than the Supra and the ERX-7 and even the 300ZX, right? Yes. It was just big and heavy and not as and not as impressive. It was, like, a lot of technological innovations like four-wheel steering and active aero, but especially the base one that we reviewed, it was just the blobby front-wheel drive thing. Yeah, and, and I specifically didn't attack the VR4 version because the VR4 version is quick, it's fast, it's it's cooler than the base model, although not as cool as a Supra, not as cool as an RX-7, or a, th- a twin-turbo 300ZX. And I think the majority of people agree with me because of those four, the 3000 GTs are the least valuable. So if, you, if you're just thinking about them equally, right, we're not talking about, you know, how much you get for the dollar that you spend, if you're just comparing these four cars equally, the 3000 GT is the worst. It's the worst of all four. Um, yes, I'm not trying to, 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 to not pay attention. I'm also reading some new comments based on the last video. There we go. And Brendan asks, what are your guys' thoughts on the 2004 through 2006 Pontiac GTO? I think they're great. Pretty cool. Yeah, actually. it was a Holden, actually, that they yeah. brought over, if you we, remember We right. actually uh, mentioned them in a... The previous podcast where we're talking about cars that you can import, I think, because you could import now the Ford Falcon, um, which is kind of the competitor to that Holden over in Australia. But Mm -hmm. the GTO is cool. A lot of people don't realize that it's a muscle car that had to be shipped to us from Australia, which I think is quite interesting that GM built a muscle car for us in Australia and then shipped it to the U.S. But It was awesome. Yeah. It's a cool car. Really powerful engines, too. They really went, went like heck. Um, very, very cool cars. Yeah, I agree completely. So uh, we're totally on board with GTO and the Nissan Hardbody, as always. Yeah. Always a Nissan Hardbody. Always. Well, let us know what you guys think in the comments section below. A huge thank you to watching, as always, for watching. Jeez, not too watching. Uh, as always, this has been Tommy. <laughs> and Brendan. We'll see you on the next episode of the official now. It's no longer a bonus. Yeah. It's the official TFO Classics podcast. Take care, guys, and thanks for watching. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, 
Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done.